gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Welcome aboard the Financial Independence Podcast. G'day, and welcome to another episode of Captain Fire, the Financial Independence Podcast, where I open the cockpit to some of the best and brightest in personal finance, as well as those who have reached or are on their way to financial independence. Before we get started, remember, nothing said here is financial advice, and you should always do your own independent research before making any financial choices. With that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode and learn something new. This podcast is brought to you by the best portfolio tracking tool for Aussie investors. ShareSite makes it incredibly simple to track your portfolio with automatic updates of share purchases and dividends, easy to read graphs, and comprehensive tax and performance reporting, all wrapped up in an easy to use cloud-based system. For users with fewer than 10 holdings, it is completely free, and I even used the free version for years. Head over to captainfire.com forward slash ShareSite dash review to see if ShareSite is for you. CaptainFire listeners can score themselves four months of ShareSite premium for free by using the bonus signup code in the article. If you do ever decide to hold more than 10 stocks, be sure to use this code to get your first four months for free. Even if you do only plan to use the free version, using the code means if you ever do upgrade, you will still get your four months for free. Ditch the Excel spreadsheet and complete your tax with a click of a button by signing up today. That's captainfire.com forward slash share site dash review for your four free months. On board today is Dev Raga, a practicing clinician from Melbourne with a passion for personal finance. Dev is a fellow podcaster and currently hosts the My Millennial Money Professional Podcast, which is a podcast that makes money concepts simple for busy professionals. Been looking forward to having a chat with you, Dev. How you going, mate? Yeah, pretty good. It's an extremely cold day here in Melbourne. And I think you're in Adelaide, if I'm not mistaken, but it's absolutely freezing in Melbourne today. It is bloody cold here as well, man. I've been inside on the computer. I actually have been doing a bit of writing today. And I must admit, I I may have turned the central heating on. Right. Well, I'm, I'm pretty much working from home today as well. So no, it's been a good day, but lovely. And thank you very much for the invite. Looking forward to the uh, episode recording. Yeah, my pleasure, mate. So before we crack in, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So my online alias is Dev Raga. That's not my real name. I'm actually a doctor working in Melbourne. I'm a practicing clinician, but I'm also a podcaster like the captain. And I started podcasting about five years ago now. And the primary reason for that is because I wanted to leave a blueprint for my children and family in the rare event that I wasn't around to explain the basics of uh, personal finance and investing. So I'm a husband, father, doctor, podcaster, and my background uh, of of Indian ethnicity. So uh, I'm a first generation immigrant and my parents migrated here uh, in the early 90s. And I grew up in Adelaide, actually, in a suburb called Burnside. And uh, subsequent to that, uh, went to medical school and then moved to Melbourne. I've been in Melbourne now for over 20 years. 
Oh, you're a traitor. You've left the gods country, mate. <laughs> I must admit, when I was growing up, there was a lot of rivalry between Adelaide and Melbourne because Adelaide always had the Australian Grand Prix. And I used to be a pretty keen F1 follower back in the day. And then Melbourne took it away from Adelaide. So there was a lot of animosity. But ever since I've moved to Melbourne, I've completely fallen in love with this city. There's something about this city that keeps people wanting more and more. But of course, the people of South Australia may defer. But I mean, I'm an avid Adelaide fan. I mean, I have very vivid memories of growing up in Adelaide. Amazing city, clean, planned very low cost of living back in the day, some great positives, great scenery in Adelaide. But I must say, Captain, ever since being in Melbourne, I've officially lived longer in Melbourne than I have in Adelaide. There's something about this city that's infectious. Ah, so that makes you a Melbourneian. Look, I'm just kidding, Dev. I actually really like Melbourne and I I lived and worked there for a while as well. It is one of my favorite places to visit and yeah lots of family and friends there lots of stuff to do definitely really good restaurants really good food really good foodie culture in melbourne hey it's amazing look i am fortunate enough to travel for work purposes and we have a fair bit of holidays and we travel up to three to five times a year the amount of amenities and facilities and culture and cuisine that we have in melbourne it's second to none And there's something about this place, despite all its deficiencies, and we've gone through a rough sort of COVID, post-COVID era and current economic uh, crisis in Victoria, but I've really learned to fall in love with the city. But having said that, when I grew up in Adelaide, it was safe. My parents didn't have to worry about schooling because most public schools in Adelaide are of excellent quality. And the lifestyle and the living standards in Adelaide for the price that you pay was amazing. So I was very fortunate to be able to grow up in Adelaide. But once I finished my high school, I I just moved on. Yeah, I noticed that quite a few of my schoolmates, they did go on to bigger and better things, larger careers, which were based in uh, Melbourne and Sydney. But I, I think there's a charm to Adelaide, which certainly attracted me back to it. And I think certainly resonates amongst the FIRE community. And I guess just thinking about that with the FIRE movement, it really exploded over the past, oh gosh, probably five years or so, the time that you've been podcasting. And it's interesting to see the different perspectives that everyone has on FIRE. And I guess the acronym itself even means different things to different people. But at the heart, I guess it's that not everybody wants to retire, but we all do need to reach financial independence at some point. So with that being said, Dev, what does financial independence mean to you? Yeah, so that that acronym FIRE, uh, I'm I'm very much an FI person, but I'm not really an RE person. So you can imagine I've trained for over 10, 15 years to do what I do. So it would be uh, unusual for someone like myself to retire early and not do medicine of some capacity later in life. Now, for context, I am a millennial. And FI to me means options. So my background as a first-generation immigrant, the scarcity mindset, my parents came with myself and my elder brother because we were seeking opportunity. And we wanted to make sure that we utilized as much opportunity and maximize the returns of that opportunity. That's the mindset that we had. And being first-generation migrant, we didn't have much money. 
So we were very scarce. And one of the things my parents did very well was they saved a decent amount of money and bought their first home relatively early on once migrating to Adelaide, in fact. And that installed a principle in me that money, although is not the most important thing in anyone's life, but it is important. And to me, financial independence is all about options, buying my time, not having to worry about money. And I'll explain this story by telling you a very poignant story that happened at David Jones back in the day in Adelaide when I was growing up and I was in middle school. And David Jones, I think it still exists in the city, Captain, am I right? Oh, you're pushing it. I'm not big on department stores. I know Maya exists because I did actually recently buy something from Myers, a shirt, right. uh, but I'm not too sure about David Jones. I might have to, sure. have to Google that one. So I guess to answer the question of what financial independence means, in one scenario, David Jones existed and attached to Run a Mall back in the day. And for those of you that are from Adelaide, you'll know what I mean back in the day in the 90s. It used to have a very steep underground car park even in the 90s. Anyway, I remember being on the electronics floor of that store as a middle school person and my parents was there. We just browse. We often go to run a mall and just hang out. And it was at the time that the first plasma TVs were being released around the world. And this would have been early 90s, mid 90s. And at the time it was advertised for $40,000 at David Jones. And I thought to myself, I went, there is absolutely no way that anyone would be able to afford to buy that. Of course, my naive self thought that was an enormous amount of money. And it is still an enormous amount of money to buy a TV. And right at that point, essentially, a person essentially bought that TV. And I thought to myself, wow, there are people out there that do exist that are able to afford things like that. Now, in my very sort of middle school simplistic way, I felt that Money was important and therefore I was able to buy things. It was very materialistic sort of, I guess, hypothesis back in the day. But essentially what that moment, reflecting on it now, now what I know about financial independence was someone able to walk into a store and be able to buy something without having to worry about it. Whereas if I twist that a little bit, what I want to do is I want to be able to walk into work and walk out of work and then have the option of reducing my work and buying my time. And all I'm substituting that is a plasma TV to actually buying time. So that was a very interesting moment in my life. That's when things clicked and I went, you know what? Money is not the most important thing, but it is important. And I've made a physical and conscious decision to focus on money matters and also became very frugal even as a university student and medical student. And that's how it all started. And that's what it means to me. Wow. Yeah, I definitely can relate to wanting to be able to buy your time back because, I mean, yeah, it's like our most valuable non-renewable asset, right? And you only get a certain amount of time and then it's gone. I mean, who better to see that than yourself, a doctor? You're probably reminded by that every single day when you work. Every single day. And unfortunately, I see part of the workplace being a doctor is predominantly we see people that are not well. We see people that have made unfortunately bad choices in their life. We see people unfortunately come into bad circumstances in their life and people don't want to go and see a doctor when they're sick. People don't want to get sick 
So I can empathise with a lot of patients who rock up to emergency or to the hospital or their GP with a medical problem because for them, time is the ultimate resource, particularly for those critical diagnoses. And you see it every day. And that's something that I'm conscious of. So I know that there are certain risk factors in my lineage, in my family, and I know that I want to minimise those. And at the same time, I want to maximise my time that I can then utilise to do, hopefully, what I want to do. And it's a very interesting concept. And I think I probably didn't understand it back in the day, but the core concept of scarcity, saving money, and having, hopefully, a high income, that's always been buried in me right from the 90s. Yeah, so this was fairly early on. You're talking about when you were in school and then at medical school. So can you tell us a little bit about how your journey to financial independence has unfolded since then? And obviously, it's led you to have a pretty bloody awesome podcast about personal finance, right? So obviously, it's gone well, but interested to see what's uh, happened between then and now. So essentially, pretty much high school and medical school, I was quite determined to have a side hustle, to have a side income while I was pursuing my studies. So in medical school, I was tutoring and I was working on research projects. I was part of the Tasmanian health study. I went to medical school in Tasmania. And all of that meant that I earned an income on the side. I was also on a scholarship. And that meant that I had to learn to live on relatively low income. I mean, we've all been students. You've been a student. Students don't have very much money to play with. And part of that means I had to pay my rent, my utilities, etc. So I learned budgeting very early on. I learned about income very early on. I actually didn't invest until I started working uh, after medical school. So I didn't invest in my high school years or my uh, medical school years, but I certainly had an appetite to make money. I had an appetite to maximize it. I had a side hustle. I I ran a pretty decent eBay business, import-export, drop shipping, and I was a relatively bright student in high school and medical school, so I was able to sell my brain, which basically my philosophy on that is basically you can copy anything and everything, but you can't copy my brain. So what I do in terms of teaching is very unique to what I do. And essentially, after medical school, I had a lot more disposable income than I really started thinking about investing and owning productive assets very early on. So the first target was to buy a house to live on and also buy an investment property and also really get started in the share market. Now, I didn't know very much about index funds back as an intern, etc., but certainly very early on as a resident early registrar, I caught on to the fact that index funds was something that I'm very interested in because I'm very busy as a doctor. I don't want to be doing any share market research. And then I worked out a system in automating that. And that has led me over the years, my 12th, 13th year of investments, has led me by all imagination of average standards, I'm financially independent. But I certainly want to continue working because I think I have a lot more to give to the medical profession and my colleagues and also to my patients. But at the same time, I want to be starting to reduce my work very soon. Oh, well, congratulations, Dev. That's pretty bloody awesome, mate. What a super exciting story. And you're clearly a very bright person and quite switched on. And to basically achieve what you have at such a young age is pretty impressive. And it's cool to hear that you 
obviously have such a sense of passion and purpose in your role that it's not something you want to move away from. And I love the idea of going part-time and slowly working your way into a quote-unquote retirement because I think the whole like fire cliff thing can be basically it's a one-way trip to an existential crisis. <laughs> mm. It's probably not very good for your, your mental health either. And so, Dev, one of the luxuries that you've afforded yourself, and rightly so, is the Tesla. Now, as a commuting GP and a family man, you've mentioned when we were organizing for this interview, you're doing a lot of school sports runs. So you somewhat famously live on the road. How has the Tesla changed this experience? Can you give us a bit about your experience and maybe how it's compared to previous cars that you've owned? Yeah, look, it's almost, it, it's interesting as a podcaster, I do talk about it on several episodes and it almost synonymous when people think about me as a financial podcaster, they automatically associated that with my car. Just a little bit of background on that. I bought a Tesla Model 3. I had my eye on it when it was first released in the US. And as soon as the orders came out in Australia, the website opened, I ordered one. And I received delivery. I was one of the you know first few, first few hundred customers back in 2019. In September, I think I got my car. And still, I think I'm one of the sort of highest sort of kilometers on the original Made in America M3. And I just bought the cheapest standard range plus. Now, a bit of background about that. Prior to that, I've always driven mostly cheap cars. In fact, I drove my 98 Magna until pretty much it caught fire on the M80. and the, <laughs> it, caught, it caught fire? Literally caught fire because I, I was so cheap to buy another car. And this is when I was just become a consultant. And in fact, one of the most famous stories was when I parked my car at a private hospital to do private assisting, I was asked to move the car from the doctor's car park because they did not believe that car belonged to me. So that's how bad that Magna was. And I treated it like shit, to be honest. And then it basically blew up. And subsequent to that, I, I ended up buying a sort of a European car. And then I really did my mileage and calculations. And the main reason I bought a Tesla was because I felt that I was just driving so much. I was spending so much on petrol and servicing. And that's why I migrated to a Tesla. As a car, you can't really fault it. I've had an amazing experience with the Model 3 and I've only done one service. It's done about 230,000 kilometers. And if you listen to my episodes, I talk about it every 50,000 kilometers I have an episode about it and I have a detailed breakdown. And there are two things that I noticed when I converted to an EV. Number one is it's incredibly cheap to run. So you cannot compare petrol per litre versus kilowatts that you pay. Number two is the servicing. One of the things that the media don't talk about when they talk about EVs is that you don't need regular scheduled servicing because there's not much to service. So for example, it doesn't have any oil compartments. It doesn't have any bearings. It's basically got a battery, got a couple of motors and some tires. And the only really thing that I service is I put the new windshield wiper fluid. That's pretty much it. In fact, when it hit about hundred and something thousand, I took it to Tesla and I said, look, I'm a little bit worried. Can you please do a service on this? Because I don't know if it's going to go wrong. And they actually said, you know what, we'll do it for you, but you don't really need to. So the servicing cost is something that a lot of people don't talk about. So the primary reason that I bought it was because 
I wanted to save money. And my calculations are, on average, uh, I'm anywhere between sort of $5,500 to $7,000 richer as a result of buying a Tesla. Now, there is a caveat. And the caveat is, people say to me, well, you could have just gone and bought a $21,000 MG petrol car. The thing is, I drive so much that I need a safe car. I needed something akin to an autopilot system and I needed something cost efficient. So I was thinking about buying a European Mercedes or BMW, that sort of level. So compared to that, the Model 3 is way better. Fast forward four years, the other brands are catching up and and have caught up. And of course, I'm not a great fan of Elon Musk. I must say that what he's become in the last sort of few years is is a little bit of a worry, and I think that's a bit of a worry for the brand of Tesla. But as a car, you have to admit that it is one of the best cars that I've ever had and driven. And I still don't think the competition comes very close to it, even in 2023. Yeah, well, it's becoming incredibly popular. Of course, Mr. Money Moustache decided to follow suit after he heard Dev Raga had the Tesla, so he's on Team Tesla. I think Jeremy... Jeremy Schneider, personal finance club, he's got a Tesla. Yeah, I know a good friend of mine is imminently about to buy one, and so I'm going to wait until they buy one, then I'm going to Mm. drive around in it and and find out if it's for me. And, of course, my partner's always bugging me. She's actually really keen to get an EV. So maybe it's into the not-too-distant future. There might be one in the Captain Fire household. The interesting thing about EVs, one of the advantages is that a lot of people don't realize if you just download something called PlugShare, there's a lot of free charging stations around Melbourne. And I'm sure there's around Australia if you just open the map. So, for example, about 37 to 40% of my charging happens near my workplace, which is a free public charger, which I just plug in. It just charges for me. So I don't actually spend my own money when I charge the car. And that's what's really interesting about it. I don't supercharge it. So I drive 180 to 250 kilometers a day. I don't need to supercharge it. The car has enough range for me to do all that without any troubles. So all this sort of range anxiety and infrastructure anxiety and cost of owning an EV, I think it's a little bit overblown. Now, is the cost enough to say it's down to the average price of a car? It's not. Maybe the cheapest in Australia is the BYD. You'll see a lot of them on the road now. They look amazing. So if you're thinking about an EV, certainly consider a BYD. But they're about forty to $50,000, which is still quite expensive. But I don't think EVs are getting any more expensive. I think they are going to get cheaper. And I think if you're in the market for a car in that range of forty to 60000 you would have to consider an EV. If you don't, financially... I think 99% of the time, you'll be backward. Yeah, I guess the biggest barrier for me at the moment is just the upfront cost versus, I guess, just keeping my current car, which is by all means still going well. And as someone who, I guess, doesn't drive very frequently, as you've said with the maths, like if you're a frequent driver like yourself, it's probably a no-brainer to be switching. But yeah, definitely for like probably people that aren't driving as much, You just have to do the maths for your individual situation, right? Absolutely. And I cannot stress this enough. A lot of people probably thinking Devraga doctor drives a Tesla, which is true. Back in the day, Devraga doctor 
drove a 98 Magna. So I would not encourage anyone to borrow money to buy a car. Uh, I would, if possible, if you're buying it for your own purpose and private use, pay cash if you can. I know it's a lot of money, but pay cash. But please don't buy a car just because it's out there. Make sure that you need a car, do your sums. I would never advocate anyone spend more money than they can afford to buy a car. And I only bought a car like Tesla quite later in my life. I was in my sort of, I suppose, 30s, right? So certainly I would not advocate. If you can't afford it, please don't buy it. Yes, definitely. Just like the $40,000 plasmas at uh, David Jones. Exactly. (laughs) Now, Dev, I've got to ask. So you obviously host the very popular podcast, My Millennial Money Professional. And previously, that was Dev Raga's personal finance podcast. Can you tell us a a bit about what you've learned? Because you've literally interviewed hundreds of professionals and some of the lessons we can maybe take away from that and apply to our own personal finances? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, the My Millennial Money Professional podcast was previously known as Dev Raga Personal Finance. And I started it because I wanted to leave a blueprint about financial concepts and principles for my children and my wife and my family. And I'm very careful about what I say on the podcast in the sense that I pretty much only focus on financial principles and concepts. And this is even before ASIC rules came out about what you can and cannot say in uh, podcasting and sort of YouTube and all that sort of stuff and media, audiovisual media about what you can say without a license. And I'm not a financial advisor. I know I'm not a financial planner. I'm a clinician. And then what happened was people started listening to it. I floated it to some friends and family and they said, oh, this is actually quite interesting. And it got onto the medical students forum, then it went onto the residents' medical quarters newsletters, and then a lot of doctors started listening it. And it was geared towards health professionals and doctors. And eventually, non-healthcare workers started listening to it. And that's when I think Glenn and I got together and said, why don't we rebrand it? Why don't we say it's My Millennial Money Medical? And then we went to My Millennial Money Professional because it really is suitable for any profession because financial principles and concepts don't change based on your profession. Then I started noticing, I mean, you mentioned about hundreds of interviews. I haven't actually recorded that many interviews with people. Uh, And the reason for that is scheduling and timing and busy schedules. But now I tend to do that a lot more frequently. But what I've learned is actually from the interviews that I've done that's never been recorded. So what does that mean? So what happens is every week, and I only do it for doctors. And the reason why I don't do it for non-doctors is because I don't understand enough of their profession to be able to provide advice and career and all that sort of stuff. But I, I do it for junior doctors and senior doctors who randomly contact me and I interview them. I have a chat to them about their life. And these are the things that I've noticed about the outcomes from those interviews, depending on who I interview. So the people that have done well, that contact me, we exchange ideas there are some common themes here. So they don't complain very much. So they don't say that their life problems or the problems that they've faced is as a direct result of other people. So that's a very common theme that I've noticed amongst people of very high income earners uh, and have built a significant net wealth or on their way to building a significant net wealth. They always have a plan. So people that make a lot of money and build financial independence early, et cetera. They don't do it by accident. I had a plan very early on 
And I, all I did was stick to it and try to execute it, refine it, learn from my mistakes. And the best way to answer that is you look at pro athletes, LeBron James, I follow a lot of NBA, MJ, the late Kobe Bryant. They don't wake up in the morning and accidentally win championships. They practice, they plan, they execute, they learn, they practice, they plan and execute. So all of these people that I've spoken to have a plan. And the third thing about their sort of personality is that they're relatively aggressive, not aggressive in terms of yelling and screaming, but they have a very positive and optimistic outlook in terms of their future and the future of people around them in the world. So there are two types of people that I've met. Everything's going to burn. There's going to be a recession. We're all going to die. Or there's the optimists who say, actually, look at historically, we've done reasonably well despite all the things that's happened around the world and all the crazy things and bad things that's happened. So they're predominantly optimists. They absolutely execute the three A's. And I talk about this in my podcast all the time. Availability, affability, and ability. And if you're a doctor or any profession listening in, if you can master those three things, that almost always leads to financial success. They are always learning. So even though I'm talking to them, even though these people are worth 10, 15, $20 million, they're contacting me to learn from me. And I'm like, no, I should be learning from you. So it's a reciprocal arrangement. They're always happy to learn and they're always constantly reassessing the way they do things and constantly trying to do better. And of course, 99% of the time, they've started early. They've thought about it. They've saved money. They understand concepts really quickly and they start saving and investing very early on. And the people that have these sort of commonalities between them, that translates into significant income and significant wealth. And that's a pattern that I've noticed amongst the people that I've spoken to, particularly those that are high income earners and high net worth individuals. Wow. It sounds like the common thing is they're working hard. They have a really good, positive mental attitude. And I mean, it's leading them through to success, right? I I love that first bit about not complaining as well, because gosh, I mean, it's it's very easy to fall into those traps, isn't there? And pessimists can sound smart, but at the end of the day, optimists make money. (laughs) Well, that's right. They are able to see things in a different light. So where there's potentially doom and gloom, or that if they have a positive spin on it, then they see opportunity. And look, I'm not saying that there are problems, or I'm not saying that there are not problems in this world. There are problems in this world. We, we have a lot of issues around the world, everything from ethnicity problems, racial problems, income inequality, and financial inequality, and net worth, wealth inequality, etc. But I think I've just noticed that these people acknowledge those issues but they try and find a way to solve those issues for themselves. Rather than saying it's all just too hard, it's not possible, they are constantly looking for ways to improve themselves. And when I speak to people, I can work it out within five or ten minutes. This person has got an excellent concepts that they want to develop. But sometimes I'd speak to people and unfortunately they, they don't have those concepts because some people want to have the cake and eat it too. And the concern that I have, and, and, and this mostly I talk to doctors, but this is true for everyone, is that I can guarantee you, I can 100% guarantee everyone that's listening in, 
the only reason that I've got a high income and I've got a relatively high net worth is because I worked hard. And also other people helped me work hard and other people joined me and helped me to become who I am. I didn't win the lotto. I didn't get lucky. It was a lot of hard work. But there are some things that are inherent in me. You have to say there's a little bit of luck involved. So for example, being male puts me at a, unfortunately, the truth is I've got the advantage. I don't need to take long maternity leave. That means I have my income stream down packed. I have my super always topping up. A lot of women don't have that option and I don't have any disabilities. So people that have disabilities, physical or mental, they're already on the back foot. And I think we all have to work together to try and bridge the gaps so that all of these people are able to access information and access information about finances. And that's one of the motivators of having the podcast. But but fundamentally, the people that I speak to are optimists and you're spot on. They believe that the future is going to be good and they believe, generally speaking, humans generally are good people. I think that's bloody awesome, Dev. I think you should be extremely proud about what you've achieved. And obviously, you're very humble there because I I can see that you actually have overcome quite a lot of challenges and medical school ain't easy and what you do isn't easy. And there's a lot of people that are very grateful for the help that you give them as a doctor. And I know that I and my family, we were in um, that position, unfortunately, not too long ago um, with serious health emergencies and Gosh, it's almost something that you don't think about until it happens and you're thrust in that position. And all of a sudden, physicians are like these gods that are ultimately feel like they have the power to wield life or death. And so, yeah, we would have been absolutely lost without our, our treating team. So, yeah. And I think the common traits that you found from interviewing other physicians, I think they're bloody awesome. And for people who are on the path to financial independence, if you just think about those common traits and think about how you can manifest some of those yourself. It's really going to help set yourself up for success. Hmm. Dev, I'm also super passionate about financial transparency, and I think removing the barriers to access to financial information is a awesome way to help remove some of those barriers and remove things that are in the way of people from building wealth. And with that being said, I'd love to spill some of the tea about your personal finances if you're up to it. Yeah, so I'm happy to discuss some concepts and happy to discuss some specifics, but I might have to keep the actual numbers a bit vague if that's okay. Yeah, of course. No problems, man. So I guess the first one is obviously you've got your income from your career as a physician, but what other streams of income have you managed to set up? Yeah, so I'm a big believer in diversification when it comes to investments, and I'm also a big believer in diversification when it comes to income. And part of that is diversification when it comes to career. So I've got pay-as-you-go income. I've got side hustles that I still do. So I do a fair bit of teaching for which I get paid. I get some income through the podcasts that I do, although it's not a huge amount and that's not my primary driver. I get a fair bit of income through dividends and distributions through index funds. In fact, that's sizable. And I've got rental properties that I get income through, but they do have some loans on them and they are leveraged. And I also, I'm not afraid to pick up extra shifts here or there. And of those extra money that I get from those shifts, almost always I save 100% of that. And I call that the marginal propensity to save. So essentially I have my base income 
And then if I make anything extra, I save almost all of it because why would I spend it? I'd invest it straight on. So I have at least five, maybe six sources of income. And my plan is as my investment income gets bigger and bigger, essentially that can offset the income that I make as a result of trading time. So therefore, that's how I buy my time back. I'm hoping to keep more of my time and that way the investment income over time will compound and be enough to completely replace my, well, 70% of my current income. Yeah. Fantastic. We'll get back to the show in a moment, but for now, I want to ask you a question. Do you have a side hustle? And if you do, is it scalable? My side hustle is building and running websites, a form of digital real estate. Now, it might sound tricky to make money online, but really, they're just small online businesses that have low overheads, high margins, and which you can easily scale by outsourcing. If you've ever read The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, then you're on the right track. What I love about websites is, just like my investments, they're working 24-7 to make me richer, and I can put as much or as little effort into running them as I like. I can pay a writer to produce a piece of evergreen content, which is then edited and posted by a virtual assistant, and then it can be viewed potentially millions of times and easily updated by my editors over the years to remain relevant. If you want to learn more about this lucrative side hustle and retraining for the digital workforce revolution, then check out my article about making money online and read my review of the eBusiness Institute and their online self-paced courses. The eBusiness Institute cover everything from total beginners right through to advanced web design and how to buy, renovate, run, and sell websites for profit. As a graduate of the eBusiness Institute, I can't thank Matt and Liz enough for the valuable web skills I've developed, and now I can enjoy growing my portfolio of websites for semi-passive income. Captain Fire listeners can register for free access to some of their resources by following the link in the eBusiness Institute review article on captainfi.com. So what are you waiting for? Start learning how to build a portfolio of digital real estate and use websites to make money today. What about the flip side, Dev? What are your current monthly expenses looking like? Yeah, so I mean, our, our expenses, probably the biggest expenses would be schooling. We send our kids to private school, which is ironic because I'm a product of the public school system. In Victoria, in Melbourne especially, unfortunately, dare I say, the public school system and the equity of access of education is not the same across the suburbs. Slightly different when I was growing up in Adelaide. Back then, I felt and and we felt, my parents felt that the public education system in Adelaide was far superior back then uh, to what it was perhaps, uh, they used to call it VCE, I think they still do it in Melbourne. So we've decided to make a conscious effort to send our children to private school, which is a significant expense. So that's going to be for a couple of kids, you're looking at between anywhere between sort of $30,000 to $50,000 per year. In terms of monthly expenses, vague numbers we're talking about, probably around between sort of 30 to probably maybe 45, 50K in terms of expenses. But when I include expenses, I'm not uh, discounting the fact that a lot of those would be investments. So when I say expenses, so for example, if I'm putting money into my Vanguard or into my super and things like that, I'd be uh, probably not super because that's employee contributed, but certainly my investments that I do would count that as an expense. So this is not money that we spend for pleasure. This is money in total. So everything from mortgages to 
utilities to telephone bills to car expenses to insurances. I'd say anywhere between thirty to fifty thousand, depending on the month. Wow, yeah, that's significant, and it's interesting the concept about the public versus the private school, and and this was something that I didn't really understand because being an, an Adelaide boy and, and growing up and going to school here, yeah, I just thought that all schools were like that. But as it turns out, I've been travelled and worked all over Australia and all over the world, and yes, it's it's not like that. Not everywhere has a fantastic public school system and I guess education is important and if sending your children to a private school that's really important for your family then you know that's your legitimate expense and who who is anyone to tell you otherwise yeah I think things are different in 2023 to what they perhaps were in 1990s when I was a student but having said that I think there is a little bit of irony in me sending my children to private school. And I think the concern that I have, uh, particularly in big cities like Sydney and Melbourne, and, and to some extent also major cities in Australia, is I fundamentally believe, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why I spread the message of financial concepts and principles, I fundamentally believe that education and access to information should be available to everyone. I do not think that just because you go to a particular school in a particular suburb that you should not have access to that information. I think that's incorrect. And I think fundamentally, I think every child should have access to that information. But I'm also a realist. And I think, unfortunately, that is not the case. One of the things I'm not sure whether Adelaide has this, it may have it now, it wasn't really a big deal back in the day. But in Melbourne, school zones are a huge deal. So parents are constantly hunting for school zones for the local public school, which is very good. And invariably, what tends to happen is that the schools in relatively good suburbs or the the schools in some suburbs have a better reputation. And reciprocally, as a result, the house prices in those suburbs go up. So when the house prices go up, well, guess what? you are eliminating a large proportion of the population in order to be able to afford to buy a house in that suburb. And therefore, you are selective about who can afford to buy that house. And therefore, you are selective in who can then, by proxy, afford to go to that particular public school. Then you look at rents. Well, it turns out, if you can't afford to buy the house, you then go and rent a house in those suburbs And as a result, the rental prices are ridiculous as well. And that's one of the huge problems that we have in Melbourne, where if you have a look at excellent top-ranking public schools, to get a house, to get a residence in and around those school zone districts is becoming more and more expensive and unaffordable for the vast majority of people. So I think the system in itself is inherently biased. And basically, we are engaging in a system where the haves and the have-nots. And I fundamentally believe, because I had the opportunity to have access to education, I think everyone should have the opportunity, I fundamentally believe that we need a better system. But in the current system, it's very skewed the way we do it in Melbourne. And I disagree with the current system. I don't know how to fix it, but it's a real problem in Melbourne. I'm just curious, how is it in Adelaide? Is that something that you've noticed more so? It wasn't really the case in the 90s. Yeah, that blows my mind away. Actually, I remember it was not that long ago, actually, I was on a, a trip and I was chatting to a more experienced captain and he was explaining this to me about his place in Sydney because we were often talking about finances and 
property and things in flight and and I said oh why are you spending so much money to be in that suburb and it's this extra commute and everything and yeah basically explained that it was due to the school zoning and exactly what you've just explained to us now that yeah people literally choose their property based on schooling zones now I'm not a parent yet I don't have kids but certainly I had a brief look into this when uh, my brother uh, came to Australia from overseas and we were looking to get him into secondary school and yeah the zoning is a thing and the school that I went to which is a public school yeah my mum didn't pay anything to send me there and it had quite a good reputation they had changed the zoning they changed the address and so we couldn't get him into that school based on my mum's old property which was a bit of a shock so yeah he ended up having to go to a different school which we say may have a not as good of a reputation but he seems to be doing well and I don't think it's a deal breaker but yeah there's certainly um, issues with zoning in Adelaide still Mm. Look, I don't think people should make a decision on schooling just purely based on academics. We didn't just focus on academics. I think we believe that there should be well-rounded education and people should have a choice in terms of where they go to school and if they can afford to send their kids to private school, irrespective of you know what academics it is, and that's completely fine. I mean, a lot of people spend a lot of money to send their kids to certain schools because they have better extracurricular activities, better music classes. Some schools offer uh, a year off and they go into the country and learn life skills and all that sort of stuff, and that's completely fine. But I, I just feel that I want to have a society as equitable as possible. I, I have to say that the Australia that I was growing up in as a first-generation immigrant was very different to the society that we have today where I'm, I'm just a little bit nervous and ironic we're talking about money in this podcast, but I'm a little bit nervous that we are slowly encroaching on the sort of, if you have a little bit of money, then you deserve a little bit better. And if you don't have that much money, then you don't really deserve the same level of service. Now, education is not the same as buying a car or buying a house and likewise healthcare. I mean, it would be highly remiss of me to say, if someone walks into the emergency department or to their doctor, we treat people based on how they look, how much money they have in their wallet. We don't. We shouldn't. And certainly, I hope that never comes down to that. And that's one of the unique things about the Australian healthcare system is that I don't care where you're from. As soon as you walk through those doors, you've got symptoms, you get treatment. And that's just the way the public hospital system should be. And hopefully that shouldn't change. But I don't know. Is that something that you worry about? I mean, from a society point of view, I mean, you've got plans to have kids, I suspect, and just curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, definitely. I think I'm not very well educated on politics and those sorts of things. But when I do the surveys, I definitely come out as leaning towards socialism. And I certainly believe that things like schooling, things like healthcare, and a lot of public infrastructure, I think that should be freely available for us as citizens. I mean, we pay a, a lot in tax. And the, the point is to the taxation is to fund public projects and things like healthcare and, and roads and schools, hospitals. And so personally, I'm not a fan of the sort of ruthless privatization that we're seeing. Things like toll roads absolutely shit me to tears and the, the pay per service. I find it um, quite frustrating. We have this kind of duality where on one second, we, okay, we're going we're gonna to pay all this money in income tax 
uh, GST and all the various other forms of taxes that we pay. And then on top of that layer, there's this new layer of uh, paper service, which it's just very frustrating. And I just prefer, can we just have one or the other? But obviously I lean heavily more towards the socialist um, aspect. It's interesting. And nine times out of 10, and every time I have a conversation with people and unlike this conversation, we start by talking about life. Then we start talking about money. Then we start talking about philosophy. Then we start talking a little bit about politics. My sort of general view is I'm not going to say that I'm poor. I'm not going to say that I don't have high income. I do. And I'm not going to say that I'm not relatively wealthy. I am. But what's interesting about this whole socialism versus capitalism, etc., it's not an all or none response. For example, I enjoy as a high income earner certain benefits in the taxation system that perhaps a slightly low income earner may not enjoy. So when people say, oh, socialism is bad and capitalism is bad, well, it's a hybrid system we have anyway, except we socialize the losses and privatize the profits. I mean, we've all heard people say that. It's an interesting situation that I find myself in. As I make more money and become more wealthier, things become cheaper. And I'm starting to find out there are some things that I enjoy that I didn't enjoy just maybe seven, eight years ago because my income allows me to enjoy those. And I get certain tax breaks and certain things that I can structure my things, which benefit me entirely. I don't know whether that's a right or wrong approach, but as a society, we need to start thinking about it and say, well, hang on, how are we going to pay for all these services? How are we going to make sure that people deserve an education, people deserve healthcare, people deserve good quality water and good quality food? These are all basics. And I fundamentally believe that people deserve all those things without having to pay for every single thing that we use, because ultimately, what sort of society do we want to live in? Uh, and I'm saying this, Captain, as a capitalist. I, I believe in the capital system. I, I believe that entrepreneurship and uh, innovation is the way to go forward, and that's how humanity gets better. But at the same time, unchecked capitalism worries me, and I think that can destroy societies pretty quickly. And nowhere is that more obvious than our friends across the Pacific in, in the United States where money just talks. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think we live in, I think, the best place in the world. Australia, I think, has got to have the best quality of life. And we're just so lucky to be here. And I think to all of the benefits that we receive, and yeah, we might have a few gripes here or there, but what an incredible place to live. And I said, as someone who's traveled quite extensively and worked in a lot of developing nations, yeah, you probably wouldn't catch me living anywhere else, to be honest. It's things that we take for granted. And I highly encourage listeners, if you haven't traveled outside of Australia, please do, because you'll see the diversity and you'll see there are some great countries out there and there are some very poor countries out there where people are still very much happy. I was actually speaking to one of my colleagues recently who unfortunately has a relative back home in India who's got a medical problem. And he was asking me, okay, well, what sort of things would you recommend that the patient would get in Australia, the same sort of medical condition was here. And it was a malignancy, so it was cancer. And I said, look, if there's a patient with a cancer, we'd often do a staging scan, which is basically scan the whole body to make sure the cancer hasn't spread. And they said, oh, that's interesting because they only scanned the neck and they only scanned the chest. And I said, well, what about the abdomen? What about the pelvis? What about the brain? And they said they didn't scan. And I think the reason why they didn't scan was because the patient couldn't afford it. 
Can you imagine? It's something that I've never thought about. I would never withhold a scan for a patient in the Australian public system because I couldn't afford it. Because guess what? It is our responsibility as a society to pay taxes so that person who unfortunately needs a CT scan to stage their cancer, it is our responsibility collectively to help that person. Uh, I think fundamentally that's what sets us apart as a society than other countries. It's as simple as that. Yeah. I Oh, sorry, you have to forgive me. Just feeling a bit emotional. Recently had a, a close friend who passed away. She actually had, of all things, a brain cancer and it went undetected. And then, yeah, she passed away in her sleep. She had a, a brain bleed. She had COVID and long COVID and she'd had body scans, but actually nowhere had she had scans of her head, of her brain. And it just, it went undetected. Mm. And uh, yeah, 30 years old. That's very tragic. And I think... I mean, I come back to the the fundamental issue is, I think, regardless of my stance on capitalism and regardless of the fact that I think that if you work hard, you earn a lot of money, I think you have every right to spend that money however you wish. And I'm not going to stop people from working hard and building wealth. Uh, But at the same time, we all have to take a good hard look at society and say, what sort of society do I want my kids to have when they grow up? And I want them to have a safe environment. I don't want them to breathe bad air. I want them to have good quality air. I don't want them all to have to buy spring water. I want them to be able to open the tap and drink the water. That's the other thing, Captain. The water in Melbourne is amazing. You go and have public water anywhere else in the world, including Adelaide, and you know that. The water in Melbourne is amazing. So we have these infrastructures and services in this country that we just take for granted. And I think people have to travel abroad and experience what the diversity out there is and you'll be quite shocked and surprised it's uh it's funny isn't it you, you mentioned how a lot of these conversations coalesce and i guess the thing is unless you've got the basics with money sorted a lot of people can't really have these high level conversations or they can't really think about it so i guess it's maslow's hierarchy and so that's another thing that i really love about the personal finance community and fire in general is that it's helping people to really stop living paycheck to paycheck and build up a buffer, build up investments, build up an emergency fund, and really you can plan forward and you can start actually having these conversations, which it's a really good thing. And look, Dev, I guess speaking of which, emergency funds, what's your thought on an emergency fund? Do you keep one? How does how do you organize it? Yeah, so absolutely essential. I think if you don't have an emergency fund, it's all about protecting your downside. One of the things that I've learned more and more in recent years as I'm starting to look at some really decent wealth, is that I'm constantly thinking about protecting my downside. So what does that mean? Now, if you have an emergency, a health scare, the car tire blows out, the car needs a new battery, home the repairs, magnet blows up. That's the right. Blows up. <laughs> That's right. You need to have enough liquid cash in order to be able to fund that emergency without having to go and borrow money or sell your assets when potentially the market is down. That's what the whole concept of an emergency fund is. And I'll have one. Mine is completely offset against my uh, principal place of residence. So I'll just use an offset account to be able to do that. Now, what's interesting about it is I generally tend to think a three to six month emergency fund is what's out there in terms of three to six months of expenses is what the general recommendation is. I tend to have a very conservative view because I come from the protecting the downside point of view. And that is I prefer to have 12 months of income at any one time. And now that's expanded to two years worth of income. And essentially the reason for that is because 
I'm reaching a stage in my life where I don't want to lose money unnecessarily and I don't want an emergency to put me out of business or delay my financial independence fat fire goal. So I certainly think emergency funds are really important and I think you need to have that down packed, to have a system to have it down packed. And as I've become older and as my kids have become older, as I'm reaching a stage of wealth, I've noticed my emergency funds have slowly crept up despite my investments also creeping up. So it's interesting that I don't just say three to six months. I say 12 months of income and then expand on it based on how you want to minimize your risk. I I look at my whole life every single day. I look at my whole life as how do I protect against any risk? How do I minimize it? How do I protect my downside? And that's why emergency funds are really important. I think you really hit the nail on the head there with protecting against risk because it's a key risk mitigator. And I guess other tools that we have in our toolbox to mitigate and I guess manage risk, personal insurances. So I guess, firstly, I'd love to ask what kind of insurances you have. And then secondly, I know as a medical professional, you're going to have a very strong position on health insurance. So yeah, I'd love to unpack what insurances you have and and your take on private health insurance. So from a personal insurance, I I have income, I have trauma, I have life. Uh, I don't have TPD. I took insurance quite early on in my career. And I was lucky enough to get one of those old policies. Uh, I think the newer policies have a little bit more restrictions on them. So those are my personal insurances, and we, we have them for both of us, myself and my wife. Now, the interesting thing about private health insurance is, yes, I entirely work in the public hospital system, but I have private health insurance myself. And I think the reason I have it is because my biggest asset is actually not my home, it's not my car, it's not my index funds, not my super, it's me. I am the biggest investment in my life because without myself and, of course, my wife who's loving and supporting me doing this, we wouldn't be able to do what we have done and what we will do in the future. So, therefore, I thought about it and I went, okay, if I have something of a medical emergency or even just a simple operation like a hernia or something like that, I don't want to be put on a waiting list in a public health system, which is designed really to look at mortality. It's designed to prevent mortality, prevent people from dying. It's not really looking at morbidity. So the best way to explain your answer is I got private health insurance because if I have a hernia and it means that I can't work and I'm the best investment in my financial life, then that's a problem. That is not protecting my downside. Therefore, it makes complete sense to offset that risk and essentially transfer that risk to the private health insurance agency, which is what I'm doing by buying private health insurance. And in return, I'm paying a premium. And essentially, that's essentially what a put option is. If you're into really into sort of options trading and all, that's exactly what a put option is. So essentially, when you buy insurance, you are trading your risk. And the insurance company is taking on that risk. So you're transferring that. And in return, they're just saying, Dev, pay me a premium. So for me, it's a complete financial transaction. I'm not going to take the risk of delaying getting back to work because I'll be on a waiting list with a groin hernia that's painful, which happens in today's public hospital system because there's a big waiting list. Now, we can go into the sort of, should we eliminate private health insurance and put all the money into the public funding and all that sort of stuff? That's a different sort of question. But with the systems that we have, I have private health insurance for that reason. For me, it's more of a financial 
transaction. It's more of a risk trade-off and risk transaction. And likewise, trauma, income and life. I mean, you've got to protect your downside. You've got to have your house in order. There is absolutely no point going and thinking about investing and doing everything investing, zero to 100 in investing, and then all of a sudden you're not really protected from an insurance point of view. And the kicker about all this, it's amazing how many doctors don't have personal insurance. It's staggering. Wow. Yeah. Look, I think that's beautifully said, Dev. Honestly, could not have said that better myself. (laughs) I was super shocked about some of the behaviors of some doctors. So my partner's family, they're physicians in the Philippines. And I remember when I first arrived and we went over for dinner, they're all smoking, vaping. Right. (laughs) Oh, guys, what are you doing? It's funny sometimes, I guess, even. I go to my friend's houses and they're tradies and they've got half-built kitchens. And I don't know, is that just the human condition that sometimes we don't take our own advice? Yeah, it's interesting. I think it is. I'm constantly surprised. I mean, I see patients all the time. In fact, the largest cohort of patients that I would see that probably would benefit from personal insurance are tradespeople. Because when you think about it, they are constantly using materials and constantly at risk of injury and ailments, chainsaws, whatever. And the number of tradespeople that I see who come in for injuries that don't have personal insurance is significant. And that is a lesson for me to say, I, I don't want me and my family to be in that situation. And that includes for both partners, right? I mean, if something happens to my wife, then I would be adversely financially affected by it because I would need to take time off work to care for my wife, right? So I think you're right. I think for whatever reason, it's a very logical thing to do, isn't it? It's very logical to just get personal insurance. Now, of course, there's a flip side of that. It's actually very expensive to get personal insurance. And that's, again, a different conversation, but we should all be thinking about it and planning for it at some stage. Yeah, I'm a huge uh, fan of insurances. I think it's super worth having. And also not to just like blindly rush out and buy all the insurance you can, but to think mindfully about okay, how does this actually apply to my circumstance and there's financial advisors and mortgage brokers that you can speak to like professionals that you can chat to who are experts at this and one interesting thing that i've picked up dev is that you mentioned you don't have tpd and, and now that's because of your investments right Yeah. So essentially, I I looked at the stats. I think the most commonly claimed insurance, correct me if I'm wrong, is either going to be trauma or income protection. That's the most common. And essentially, I didn't think that I needed a significant lump sum in the event that I had permanent disability because I have assets to cover for that lump sum and also have trauma insurance. So if something were to happen amongst those major conditions, I would be paid out. But yeah, primarily, I decided that I half a million dollar, million dollar payout would be great if I'm total permanent disability. But luckily, I have enough investments to cover. And I guess the risk that I took was up until I had enough investments, yeah, anything could have happened. But uh, you're right. Primary reason is I don't need it at this stage. Yeah, I was um, just speaking to Louise uh, Howard recently, and um, she's a a high level executive in uh, New South Wales Transport. Um, She's now moving into the private sector mm-hmm. and I asked her this exact same question and one of the things that she was talking about was well when you have enough money invested and she didn't particularly have a huge mortgage so her tag was I don't need life insurance mm-hmm. and that was something that I actually come to a similar conclusion in my 
position because at the moment I don't have dependents and I have a, a fairly healthy investment portfolio. So for me, I don't really have any beneficiaries. So there's not a need for me to be having that. Similarly, because I'm quote unquote retired, I don't actually have income protection insurance because mm. I don't have a PAY job. So yeah, I just think it's important to look at your personal circumstance and, and basically tailor that to manage your risk appropriately. Because yeah, if you're just like starting out, <laughs> insurance is super important, mm. right? And as your net wealth grows, you just begin to self-insure over time. Correct. Yeah. So look, another question I'd love to ask, Dev, is about savings rates. So it's one of the most important, I guess, metrics when we talk about building wealth. I probably took it a bit too far and got a bit too obsessed with it. Maybe that's just my personality. But nevertheless, I'm still interested to see whether you calculate a savings rate or you have a target and how that might have changed. Yeah, so that's changed over the years. So when I first started, like yourself, I was very aggressive, anywhere up to 70% savings rate of after-tax income. But, you know, I was single, I just got married, no kids, pretty easy to do when you have a relatively highish income in your 20s, which a lot of doctors, if you're mid-20s to late-20s, you're looking at anywhere between ninety to maybe $200,000, depending on what sort of specialty you're training in. So saving that much money was relatively easy. As I've gotten a bit older, I had kids, etc., pretty hard to save 70%. So I've set it on a minimum of 20% of after-tax income is what I generally aim for. But some months, it's up to 50% depending on what sort of income I have for that month. I have a base base income, but also have other additional income. But I'm a huge fan and a huge advocate of people that save a lot of money, purely because the statistics show that the younger you are, the more earlier in financial independence journey you are, it's easier to save money than it is to reproduce those returns in your investments. To give you an example, if you make $100,000 after tax income per year, it's actually quite easy for you to save 50%. When I say easy, I'm not saying cost of living pressures and all that. What I mean is you can make a conscious decision to try and save 50% of that if you really wanted to. And that's really a 50% return on your money when you think about it. Whereas it's pretty hard to take that money and get a 50% return every single year for the rest of your life. In fact, it's impossible. So earlier in life, your savings rate means and matters a lot more than later in life. So once you start building wealth, once you reach that sort of threshold, then it's about your investment returns. And there's a lot of studies to show this. And if and I follow that same philosophy. Earlier in life, saved as much money as possible, plowed as much money as possible into investments, and all of them have just compounded over time. And now every quarter, uh, it's literally free money that comes into my account, which I reinvest, which is all dividends. I just reinvest all of it. So yeah, big believer in high savings rate, if you can. And of course, in professions like medicine, your income would go up. Therefore, 20% of a very high income is a very high number. So that's why I set it on the 20% after tax rule at the moment. Awesome. And so, I mean, you've mentioned dividends, index funds, and property, but are there any other areas that you invest your money in? Super. I'm a big fan of super because, yes, super is not touchable until the age of preservation. Yes, it's restrictive. Yes, there's legislative risk. There's a legislative risk in everything. I mean, are we really to believe that your index funds outside of your super is potentially not 
at risk of legislation. The government could change legislation on tax rates or franking credits or dividends, which they tried to do just a few years ago. So I'm a big fan of super because essentially the way I look at it is that for the first $27,500 that I put into super, my tax rate, if I'd earned that money, is 45 to 47% because I'm a high income earner. Whereas if I put the money into super, it's a no-brainer. I got a 15% tax, which means literally I've made 30% of my money instantly without it even growing. So for me, from a mathematical point of view, from a behavioral point of view, I love super, but I plan to use super as the icing on the cake. So the way I would look at super, and I'm trying to use an analogy here, my investments and my investing life may get me business class, but my super might upgrade me to first class. That's the way that I look at it. So it's like, I'm not relying on my super, but it's a nice hefty sum. And I'm not going to say no to it because on the back end, it's almost always going to be tax-free or very low tax. Yeah, it's. I love that, the icing on the cake. It's definitely my backup strategy as well. And the other thing is, even we talk about like fire and early retirement, well, early retirement still encompasses a, a conventional retirement, right? So yeah, you might have to retire in your 30s or in your 40s or even in your 50s, but you will get to preservation age eventually, right? So yeah, I think it's a really good tool as well. Absolutely. I mean, ignore your super at your own peril. Unfortunately, in the medical community, there are a lot of people that think super is a scam. They think it's a government scam that they actually take the money from you and it's another way of revenue of taxation. And these are very high income professionals that are very sound, but they have very silly ideas like this. So yeah, I mean, I think super is great. And I just have an industry super fund. It's as simple. I don't have an SMSF. It's too complicated. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you there. I was pretty fortunate at a, a really good super due to my employer. And yeah, it's just really grateful to, to have a good program. And I was chatting to Andy Derrick recently and yeah, he's a huge proponent of industry super funds and he, he reckons you just can't beat him. I'm not really an expert on super, but I certainly know to, to listen to the people that are. <laughs> I think your industry super funds, unless you're really clever and want to do something very unique with your SMSF, like you want to own a property or business practice or a medical practice or something very unique, which I can't understand why people would do that. There's always reasons why people do it. I don't see any value in it. Now, I guess another asset class, which we don't really talk about, well, I don't really talk about a lot, is bonds and fixed interest. Is that anything that interests you or are you more just proponent into the growth stocks? Yeah. So I have a diversified portfolio in my super. So that includes bonds and fixed income assets and property and all that sort of stuff. And that's a very diversified global index fund. But outside of my super, I don't do any individual bonds. I don't invest in any bonds because I'm very young by most people's standards. I'm a millennial. So I've got another 20, 30 years left uh, of investing life. So I don't think I need bonds at this moment. And I'm aiming for a very high sort of investment portfolio. So I think even if the stock market crashed you know, 30, 40, 50%, I think for me, it would matter too much because once you have a high target, it doesn't really matter. Now, if you're targeting a lower portfolio, then yeah, sure. Uh, I think bonds is something that you'd want to think about. And of course, the, the people that bought bonds five years ago with very low interest rates because there's an inverse relationship, those bonds uh, were worth quite a bit of money back then. But obviously, as interest rates have risen, the same bonds uh, will be worth a lot less because it's inverse relationship. So that's an interest rate risk that people have to take into account. 
Yeah, look, I think I'm definitely uh, in the same camp as you at the moment. I don't have any. I know there's smart people that have come up with mathematical models and the efficient frontier and, and all that. But yeah, I'm also just happy to accept a bit more volatility, take a bit, bit more risk and get a bit more reward. Now, Jeff, we were talking about this before and you thought that this might put off a couple of people. And I actually think this is an awesome goal because you obviously are wanting to reach fat fire. So I don't know, are you happy if I, if I ask this? What's your fire number or your passive income figure that you're aiming for? Yeah, so I've got to be a little bit careful because people that listen to your podcast also know me. <laughs> so having said that, I'll give you a sort of rough idea. My portfolio is going to be in the range of sort of eight figures. I don't think it's going to be nine figures. I think I'd be lucky if I hit nine figures, but I think it will be in the eight figures. So you can extrapolate that. To, I use a 4% withdrawal rate principle. So if, if you have an eight-figure portfolio, and it's not going to be 10 million, it's going to be higher, then you can extrapolate that sort of a 4% rule, right? So, And I don't want people to think that's just ridiculous. I don't think it is because FI number is very personalized. And remember, I'm not going to fully retire in my working life. So I'm going to be partially retired, but I'm not going to be fully retired because I feel that as a doctor, I have a lot to give back to society. I have a lot to give back to my colleagues. I have a lot to give back to medical students. I love teaching. So I'll be doing that. You bet you. So if you're an aspiring medical student in about 20, 30 years time, you're going to have Dev hanging around, lurking around in your hospital or your clinic, trying to <laughs> ask you questions about random things that you probably don't know the answers to. But hopefully that gives you a bit of a ballpark figure. Eight figures for sure. I don't think nine figures. I'd be very lucky if I did. Yeah, definitely. And I guess you've mentioned it. It's you're building a legacy here. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, the actual number doesn't really matter because once you have an income, let's say half a mil or 600 or 700 or 800, and then you make a mil, it doesn't really add too much value to your life. But the point that I'm trying to explain to people around me and certainly my children is that you need to have a plan. You need to think about these things. And when I speak to doctors on those sort of phone calls that they just exchange ideas, the people that have been successful or have a plan have thought about this. They've said, okay, this is what my target's going to be. And these are my variables that I'm going to put on. And if I get everything going against me, this is my bad figure. If I get everything with me, then this is my good figure. So they give a bit of a range. Whereas some people have no idea. And in fact, when I ask that question to a lot of people, they go, I don't know. I don't know how much I need to live on. And I answer them, in this way, I'll say, what's your income now, right? And they say, let's say they say half a million dollars, right? Let's put a ballpark figure. And then I say, okay, how much do you think you need to live on retirement when you retire in about 20 years time? And then they'll say something like, you know, I'm not really sure, probably about 70,000 dev. And I'm like, you're telling me that you're going to be able to live on about 12 to 13% roughly of your current income. And that's not going to happen. Because we know studies have shown between 60 to 70% of peak earning years is what people need. So I think people need to think about it. People need to be realistic about it and don't underestimate it. Because when I speak to people, no one's ever rang me. Actually, this is an interesting way to look at it. No one's ever rang me, Captain, and said, Dev, please help me. I have so much money and I'm really stressed about it. No one's ever said that, right? <laughs> No, no that would be a weird problem. <laughs> no, no one's ever said, Deb, please help me. I'm worth $15 million. 
and I'm not really sure what to do. 99% of the time when we have a chat, it's usually doctors that don't know about basic finances or whatever, and I don't provide any financial advice. But 99% of the time when you look at what's happening around us, you look at the media, look at what's happening right now with the cost of living crisis, 99% of the time people say, I just didn't plan well enough and I don't have enough money to fund my retirement. It's not the other way around. And I don't buy this argument when people say, oh, you don't really need this. You don't really need that. Why do you need this? Why do you need that? They need it. That's what they need and that's what they want. It's okay to plan for that. And if you're half wrong, so what? Uh, At least you've got half of what you plan for. So certainly thinking about it, and I've thought about this very carefully, and I've put some variables in. And even if I'm half wrong in what I'm trying to achieve, I'll be fine. But the number itself is not the important bit. It's the process that I want people to understand, that I want people to take seriously. Yeah, I love it. Look, Dev, it reminds me, when I was a kid, I went to school and I mean, obviously this is before I did a degree in space engineering and we had this painted on the wall in the classroom and it said, aim for the moon, even if you fail, you'll still be among stars. And I think it's a brilliant quote. And obviously I know now that stars are, much further away than the moon (laughs) but I love the concept and it's just exactly that even if you don't achieve these phantasmagorical goals that you might set for yourself you're still going to be in a a much better position than if you hadn't planned and taken any action at all well absolutely And, and, and the thing is here's the deal right about 50 minutes ago in this podcast I mean you said and I said time is the most important resource it's non renewable and Imagine if you're 58, 60, about to retire, and you find out, actually, I can't retire on the amount of money that I have. I need to rely on the age pension or something like that. You can't go back in time because it's gone. It's never going to come back. And I don't want people to be in that situation. But having said that, time is also non-renewable right now. So you don't want to be working 24-7 and in the hope of retiring on huge amounts of money. That's not what I'm proposing. There has to be a balance. And sometimes I worry that people focus too much on their time right now because they don't want to focus on it later on, but they're going to have to distribute it. They're going to have to focus on it all the time and have to have a balance. You can't have it all. You can buy anything in life if you want, but you can't buy everything. So there's got to be a give and take here. Yeah, that's a bloody good message. Now, Dev, you've obviously been in this space for a long time. You have done a lot of education, self-development, and you're really doing fantastic work to help educate others and as well as with the mentoring and coaching that you're doing, helping other people to get their plans together. So with that in mind, do you have any awesome resources that you might refer people to? Like do you have any favorite books or obviously we know the My Millennial Money Professional Podcast is, is a pretty good learning resource. But, you know, are there any other ones that you refer people to or that you're a big fan of? Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of J.L. Collins' stock series. I think you might have just interviewed him recently on your podcast and I, and I spoke to him a while ago. I think it was a real eye-opener. If you read the stock series, it just tells you hard facts um, and it's very nicely written as well. It's pretty easy to read. I'm not a great book reader. Uh, I, I have read uh, Glenn James's book, for example, which was nicely written. I've read uh, Psychology of Money and I've read Noel Whitaker's books, Retirement Made Simple, and I think there's another, I think Making Money Made Simple. But the underlying themes about all of this is that the story is exactly the same. If you read all of these books, Protect Your Downside, 
save money, make money, invest money, do it for the long term. So I've basically said the five steps, pay yourself first, start investing into things that you understand, do it for the long term, reinvest dividends and wherever possible automate. Those are the five things that people need to know about. In terms of, I'm, a, I'm a, also a great consumer of YouTube. I don't know if you are. Do you, do you watch a lot of YouTube? Yeah, love it. Yeah. I, I had grand delusions that I was going to make a YouTube channel and yeah. it's a lot of work. So I do appreciate all of the work that the content creators go to produce such awesome resources for us. Yeah, I, I watch a lot of YouTube. When I say I watch a lot of YouTube, I have a YouTube playlist that I create and I just play it in the background while I'm driving. And I, I watch a lot of money content on YouTube. I do not watch financial news on YouTube and I do not watch those content producers that, you know, uh, clickbaity sort of titles. I, I don't like that sort of stuff. And I don't watch anything that I do not believe in. But there's a lot of great educational content out there in terms of if you just YouTube passive investments or active investments or people that do videos about concepts, they do exactly the same as what I do, but they do it in video format. So I don't have any, I, I subscribe to, I think about 400 channels or something that, that I subscribe to. There's plenty of good content out there. But yeah, those are the main ones. I, I'm not a, huge sort of you must do this you must do that i think it it depends on what your style is but for me my style is mainly youtube and of course i listen to various podcasts as well yeah especially driving around does your tesla drive itself dev or do you still have to steer so i have the basic autopilot package and about 80 percent of my driving is autopilot because what that means auto steer um, that's so good it's auto steer it's radar cruise i don't have the complete autonomous package where it changes lanes and all that sort of stuff i have tried it it's too conservative, so I don't have patience for that. So I have to do my own lane changing, but I do a lot of freeway driving. So and I can go 30 to 50 kilometers without having to actively do an intervention for the car. And that's one of the reasons I bought it because I, I can't imagine holding a steering wheel and actively driving a car for long periods of time because it'd just be so tiring. Do you, do you know what's really funny, mate, is that at one point, because we have a Wi-Fi in the jets and... Mm. When, when you're in the cruise and you obviously have an autopilot set and everything's all good and I have my iPad with me and I was watching YouTube videos and like doing all sorts. It's great. Blogging, writing, doing uni assignments whilst flying wow. the plane. So it's really cool to hear that you're be able to do the same thing from the Tesla. Yeah. I mean, it's a very real possibility. One of my daughters, the youngest one, may not need a driver's license. It's a very real possibility that in the next sort of 10 years or so, we would have a lot more automation in cars. If you had told me just 10 years ago that 80% of my driving is going to be on basic autopilot, which is a lot of cars now have basic autopilot, Mercedes, BMW, etc. they all have it, I would have gone, maybe not. But having said that, if you had told me 20 years ago that we're going to manage our lives with our smartphones... I would have gone, mm, maybe not. But, you know, that's what I mean by optimism. And it, it's quite staggering and fascinating how far and how quickly humanity has achieved some of the things that we have literally in my generation, which is the last 30 years. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I think the future is very bright. Yeah, I think we're in a bloody awesome time to be alive. Dev, look, it's been awesome chatting, mate. I know you're a busy doctor, but I'm going to ask you one last question. And everybody hates this one. (laughs) So if you could distill all of your knowledge about financial independence um, into three takeaway points, 
very convenient, obviously. For mm. <laughs> what, what would they be, mate? What would your your top three? So the top three things. Okay, so the number one thing is don't be afraid to earn more money. So slightly non-traditional advice. I think in the sense that there's a lot of thought out there and, and I hear it from healthcare workers, particularly nursing staff, but I hear this, oh, I'm not going to do the extra shift because I'm going to pay 50% of that in taxes, right? That, that sort of mentality, I'm not going to make more money because I need to pay more to the government. I, I think that's dangerous because essentially what you're saying is I'm happy with the status quo. And I think people should be pushing the boundaries, uh, particularly if they're into financial independence and retiring early. So I think getting a fantastic education, trying to upskill, having a career, and making sure that you increase your income is very useful. The second thing, of course, is once you do that, and this is just, I'm just going to give you three tips about money, Captain, not about life in general, but three tips. Once you've got a high income, you've got to keep it. The lifestyle creep is a real problem particularly in healthcare workers, particularly in doctors. The number of doctors that get their fellowship and want to buy Mercs and BMWs is quite staggering without actually owning a home, for example. So make sure you make a lot of money and make sure you keep a lot of that money and invest it. And the third thing I think is, okay, what do you invest in? It's a very common question that you'd get, I'd get, everyone get. Here's the deal. You have to invest in things, in my humble opinion, that are productive assets. I do not buy things that are speculative, thinking that they're an asset. So for example, I own my own home. I understand that it's a speculative asset because it doesn't produce an income. And I know that in 20, 30 years time, I'm speculating that some Tom, Dick and Harry is going to come and buy it off me for two or three times as much money as what I paid for it. Now that's a speculative asset. I need a home to live in. I understand that. Whereas most of my other assets that I have that are true assets are productive. They rise in value over time. That's the hope. And I pay very little fees for them. And in that time, they produce an income. And the simple way that I would explain that is that if you have a million dollars and you bought a million dollars worth of gold, I'm going to use gold as an example because I don't buy gold because it's speculative. And you buy $1 million worth of gold, you bury it in your backyard and you come back 20 years later and you dig it up. What do you get? You get that gold. It hasn't produced any dividends. It hasn't multiplied. It hasn't done anything for society. It doesn't produce anything for society. And then you take the gold out of the ground and you go to the merchant, you go to people and say, hey, I've got this gold. Please buy it off me for one and a half million dollars. Now, there are people out there who'd say that's a good way of investing. I don't think that buying a non-productive asset is a good strategy. So those are the top three things I would Make sure that you try and have a high income. Make sure you keep a lot of that income, particularly early in your career, so savings rate. And then when it comes to investments, think about investing in productive assets. And the easiest way to find a productive asset is a question you need to answer yourself is, if I buy this asset, what does it do for me? And what does it do for society? And generally, if you have a look at people that have made a lot of money, it's people that solve problems in society. It's businesses that plug a hole that produces goods and services that solve and provide a service that solves an issue in society. It's those sort of businesses and those sort of people that end up becoming wealthy in their life. Yeah, stuff that produces uh, value to people. Correct. 
Yeah, love it. Awesome tips, Dev. Well, this has been awesome, mate. I've really enjoyed chatting with you tonight. Thank you so much for your time, mate. Before we finish up, is there anything that you'd like to mention that we might have missed or skipped over? Look, not really. I really don't want people to lose heart and be down, particularly when I did mention what my portfolio was likely to become and what it is and all that sort of stuff. That's just me. You don't have to do that. It's really important what you need to do is look at your situation and think about your situation, plan for your situation and execute your situation. Because I always go back to that NBA example. You know, MJ didn't wake up randomly one morning and win six championships. He planned for it, he worked hard, he executed it, and he learned from his mistakes. And I think if you use that sort of principle in your life, for career, for money, for general life advice, I think that's the take-home message in addition to the money messages, that's the take-home message. So don't get too disheartened by some of the nitty-gritty figures. And if anyone wants to contact me via Twitter or Facebook, I'd be more than happy to extend the conversation. Awesome. Yeah, dude, I'll take the opposite viewpoint. I would say that, man, people listening to that, they're going to be inspired by you. And what I think it also shows is it's like, hey, we're on to something good here. Because if there are wealthy people that are using these strategies and these strategies are available to everyone, well, that's probably a pretty good sign that we're onto something good here, right? So I would say absolutely inspirational, mate. And you were mentioning Michael Jordan and I can't really remember the quote, but something comes in the back of my mind. He was talking about whilst everyone thinks he's this amazing baller, he had missed like mm. thousands of shots, like 10,000 shots in his career, like mm. hundreds of games. But he just, as you say, he kept picking himself up. He kept practicing and became a legend. So, yeah, it's not about the shots you lose. It's just about that you get up and try again, right? Mm. It was a very famous Nike commercial is when he says, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my life. But people remember him for the shots that he made, not for the shots that he missed. And I think part of the commercial was uh, people focus on my positives on what I've achieved. But to better myself, I focus on why I missed those 9,000 shots. What else could I have done to make it just 8,000, even 7,000? And I think that's an amazing way to look at things when you think about it because the first thing people think about when they think about MJ is undefeated in the finals, six championships, arguably the greatest of all time. But his perspective is, I missed 9,000 shots and why? Yeah, it's perspective, right? Correct. Yeah, awesome. Hey, Dev, it's been bloody brilliant chatting to you, mate. For anyone who's listening and they want to check out Dev or get in contact with him, jump onto the show notes. I'll have links to his podcast, My Millennial Money Professional. He also hangs out on Twitter, Facebook, and I believe LinkedIn as well. Correct, yeah. Yep. So yeah, drop him a line and it sounds like he's always keen for a chat. Dev, once again, thank you so much for your time, mate. Had an absolute blast chatting and look forward to catching up sometime again in the future. Thank you very much for having me and wonderful. Keep doing what you're doing and thank you everyone for listening and joining in and participating and good luck with your financial adventures. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Captain Fire Financial Independence Podcast. To read the transcripts or check out the show notes, head over to www.captainfire.com for all the details. If you have a question for the captain, make sure to get in touch. You might even make it on the airwaves. 
You can reach me online through the Captain Fire contact form or get in touch through the socials. I'm active on Facebook and Instagram as well as a number of online finance and investing forums. And finally, remember, the information presented on the show and the links provided are for general information purposes only. They should not be taken as constituting professional financial advice. You should always do your own research when making any financial decisions and make sure it's appropriate for your personal circumstance. 